0: Welcome to Tilting at Windmills
1: with your host Mike Donahue.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Tilting at Windmills with Mike Donahue. And today we are fortunate um, to have Nicolette Han nyman um, joining us in the studio. Welcome Nicolette.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Do you do do you do you're a Nicolette, you're not a Nikki? <laughs>
1: I was Nikki for the first probably 15 years of my life. And then it's pretty much been Nicolette Nicolette ever since then. So
0: I I get you. I'm a Mike and a Michael, and I'm still a Mike. uh, Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, you know how that is. When you see people from your childhood, they use the childhood name. So for a certain group of people, I am Nikki. (laughs) Right. Well, but my chosen name at this point is Nicolette. Yes.
0: Okay. I will call you Nicolette. I was just, I was always in trouble when it was Michael. So uh-huh, yeah. there's a, the subconscious aversion to my name.
1: Um, <laughs> I understand.
0: So I I think you're super fascinating in as much as if you can tell your story a little bit, because let's let's pick it up. You you graduate uh college with a legal degree and you're an attorney uh, working for a nonprofit, correct? That's sort of where you are at that point in your life or early life.
1: Yeah, well I had a um I'm I'm from Michigan originally and I had a strong background in you know just kind of like spending a lot of time out in nature and my parents were really you know we spent a lot of time out in big nature walks and my mom had a big garden in the backyard and used to do a lot of cooking and baking at, you know from scratch. So I had a lot of connection to kind of the earth, you know, and and it was very interested in environmental causes and when I was in college I majored in biology but i also became a vegetarian in college because i was kind of partly because of my strong interest in ecology and health i thought it was a good choice the best choice actually that you should make and and then years later i was working as a lawyer i had gone to law school i was a prosecuting attorney originally and then i was working for first for the national wildlife federation and then i was hired by robert f kennedy junior to be the senior attorney for his environmental group in New York, which is called Waterkeeper Alliance. And it's basically a water protection organization. You know, they try to stop water pollution. So I was originally planning on just sort of, that's what I thought my job was going to be, is just basically working on various different issues related to water protection. But, But Bobby Kennedy Jr. was very interested in having some kind of National focus on this question of the pollution from large concentrated animal operations, you know, so big concentrated hog and poultry and dairy operations in particular. And so he asked me to start a campaign, a sort of a national project on trying to get that issue addressed and try to, you know, bring some legal cases and other things on that specific issue. And so during the two years that I worked for him in New York, that was the focus of my work and was, you know, still a vegetarian. So I'd been about a a vegetarian for about 10 years at that point. And interestingly in that job, even though we were kind of fighting against the meat industry, I was also sort of on the side, also becoming kind of a meat advocate, even though I was a vegetarian, because I was visiting some Really unappealing, really environmentally problematic big operations. But I was also visiting some really cool farms and ranches where they were doing things really well, you know, taking really good care of the animals, taking really good care of the land, producing really beautiful food. And increasingly, I was thinking, there's such a big difference. You know, how you raise the animals makes a huge difference for the animals and for the food and for the people involved. And During that two years, I also met Bill Nyman, who was the founder of a natural meat company called Nyman Ranch, based in California, but a network of farmers and ranchers from around the country. And I began spending a lot of time on those farms and ranches that were in the Nyman Ranch Network, and I was incredibly, actually kind of just fell in love with what they were doing. And then I ended up falling in love with Bill Nyman. (laughs) So I ended up marrying Bill Nyman and moving from New York to California and then sort of married into a ranch and into the meat industry in a way, but I was still a vegetarian. And that was about almost 20 years ago when I did that. So I've spent the last about... Almost 20 years living and working on a ranch and and then I got really involved in writing and advocacy work from kind of an independent standpoint not not affiliated with an organization anymore but just working on behalf of trying to make this case for sustainable meat production really you know high quality good meat and that's what I've been doing for the last couple decades
0: so I just want to get I just want to Look at the juxtaposition a little bit because, so there was a point in your adult life where you were an attorney living on the East Coast and a vegetarian. And now you are a farmer, omnivore writer. Like there's a big,
1: Um, those are... On the west, very western. West coast, coast. Of, yeah. right, right, on, the,
0: on the, the leftist of left coasts.
1: <laughs> that's true. Uh,
0: that's a big life change, yeah?
1: Yeah, it is, except for it's sort of odd. There's this little town I live in, um, which is called Bolinas. It's north of San Francisco. There, there are a lot of people here who've spent time in New York City. There's this, a strange connection there. And I think it's largely because this town is very it has a lot of writers and poets and artists and there's a a sort of a strong um, ethos here about caring about the world and, you know, expressing yourself and being engaged in civically and so forth. So it wasn't that it's oddly, (laughs) it wasn't that big of a shift in some ways culturally to move from New York to here. But that being said, yes, there were a lot of changes. And, and I, I, stayed a vegetarian for a long time, even after I was married to Bill for about 16 years of our marriage, I was a vegetarian. And then just a few years ago, I decided to start eating meat again. So I did return to the omnivory that I was raised with, you know, I was not raised a vegetarian. But yeah, there's been, it's been an interesting journey.
0: But you, you, so you must have some hippie blood in you. There's- I don't
1: think so. No, no. <laughs> really don't. Okay, okay. No, my dad was a history professor and he came from Ohio and just a very solid midwesterner and my my mom um was from Germany and came to the US after World War II and um went to college, finished up her college education in the US and then and then she got a master's degree here in the U.S. and taught languages. But they were very centrist. And I have to say, in these very divided and troubled times, I, I always think, I just feel like I have these strong Midwestern roots with these very, not centrist in like the wishy-washy sense, but centrist in the sense of not ideologues. You know, they were just really open to learning and trying to understand and think of the long term and the big picture, and those are values that I try to live myself um that my parents definitely were good models of
0: yeah i, I think it is something that we're sort of and I, again we we focus a lot on sort of there's a big political aspect, I think to this podcast or my my podcast and the uh cultural ramifications, and it really feels like there's so many things that they're set at face value. And if you take them at face value, the problem is is that it takes effort on the individual's part to sort of dig past whatever is said at face value. And I think maybe that's in reference to, you know, you're sort of digging into or, or having a more long-term or, or deeper examination of, of things rather than just sort of, yeah, okay, that's, I've heard this on the radio and so now that's the thing and now I feel this way because of that.
1: Well, and I think what I love, I love podcasts because you get to have a conversation and really dig into things and kind of turn an idea over a little bit and talk about some nuances. So much of the information people get nowadays is from the tiniest of sound bites. So, you know, you're not even, you know, Facebook was a thing for a long time and that kind of seemed to reduce down the level of you know, sophistication of the information we were all getting. But then it was Twitter, you know, it was like even shorter little bits of information that people are basing opinions on, you know, so my passion has been, uh, and I think it does kind of come from my parents being educators, but also just me being a sort of a really dyed-in-the-wool Midwesterner, you know, that I'm really passionate about. Let's like, let's take a moment. (laughs) Let's really try to learn about this. Let's think about this let's listen, let's be open, whatever issue, you know, we're talking about, let's try to understand it before we form our opinions. And that is, um, kind of my passion.
0: So you're certainly not shy in expressing your opinions. That's true. There was a, you did a book review where you're like stupidest book ever. This is (laughs) the the summary of my, my book review,
1: uh, I, you know, I yeah I don't you know I don't like to mince words either. I don't think there's any um reason for the most part to be nasty, but I also sometimes you know sometimes the truth hurts.
0: Right, and we can get into cowspiracy a bit later. Um speaking of truth hurting, some people so you switched to from your vegetarian regime into an omnivore regime why what was the I'm sure it wasn't Dodger dogs what what was the clicker for you that made you try me and then continue on with it
1: yeah well it wasn't a, a decision that I made you know from one day to the next actually it was a I've been thinking about it for a long time because everything that I've been doing for the last 20 years is try, trying to really understand agriculture and and food production and then in the last 10 years or so, in particular, I've gotten more and more into the the nutrition side and really trying to understand what our bodies need and what's been happening. Because, I mean, American and throughout the industrialized world, the health of people has just been declining. You know, I mean, actually, our life expectancy is going down for the first time in a long time. And... You know, we've gotten. Actually, I read a book a few years ago, not really related to food or farming, but it was about the way we age. And it really also affected my thinking. It was talking about how we, in sort of the modern industrial world, have got this idea now that it's normal to age a certain way, you know, because it's so common. So we, we see people that are, you know, when we're in our thirties, we see people in their forties and fifties and sixties, and we just think there's this natural trajectory. And then as we go through life, we, we think, yep. Okay. Now I'm in that stage that everybody's in. And what is hard to sometimes recognize is that these things are not necessarily inevitable ways that our bodies should be transforming as we age. And this book uh, that I read, I think it's called Younger Next Year, actually, is written by a couple of people, What one of them was a physician. And the argument was that essentially the way that we age in the modern industrial world is not the inevitable way that people are evolved with, you know, that, that if you look at historically or in sort of non-industrialized societies, this is not the way people age. So, of course, it talked a lot about diet, talked a lot about exercise, and it had, a, you know, other aspects that it discussed as well, such as how um, connected you are to community, you know, and all these other things that are, you know, there's a lot of talk about it these days in the public conversation, which is good. But essentially, I was thinking a lot about this because I was approaching the age of 50, and I had always been, I've always been pretty health conscious of my food, and very physically active. You know, I used to do a lot of running races and triathlons in my 20s and 30s. And um, I've always been a swimmer, a biker, a runner, a skier, you know, you name it. And I was really trying to think what I should be doing with my own lifestyle and my own health so that I wouldn't go down this pathway of, you know, sort of getting less active, getting heavier, getting heavier, you know and beginning to have you know metabolic issues that are so common in the industrialized world and so i increasingly became convinced that as you age you need to eat food that is basically as nourishing as possible to put it in simple terms and that eating a lot of sort of empty calories that don't have a lot of nutrition attached with them is really counterproductive and so i started you know really examining my own diet which i considered very healthy you know and and i was a vegetarian largely because i thought that was a healthy diet and i started realizing that if i wanted to age as well as possible you know thrive in my 50s and 60s and 70s etc that i should be adding meat back into the diet so that i would have the nourishment and the high quality protein that they provide that it provides so I decided over a period of years that this was probably the right thing to do. And then I ended up specifically eating meat on a particular occasion with my husband preparing some beef from our own ranch. He grilled a hamburger for me and we documented it on film as is so often the case nowadays because actually there was a friend of mine who was making a movie and she knew I was going to start eating meat again. And she said, oh, can I film you? And I said, sure. I don't have any objection to you doing that. So I was, you know, it was, there was a particular moment when I started eating meat again, but it was, there was a kind of a build up to that moment, but it really wasn't very dramatic because.
0: Your head didn't spin around. There was no projectile. And I actually
1: thought I might feel like, oh, my God, what have I done? And it didn't feel that way at all. It was like, oh, wow, this is really tasty. (laughs) Why have I not been eating this? You know, and and I sort of had this sense of relief, actually, because I realized there's a there's a lot of cultural baggage and you get tied into your, um, you know, your view of yourself. And I had been a vegetarian for a long time at that point, more than 30 years so, even though I never made a big issue about being a vegetarian, that was sort of what I was known among my friends and family and people who had read my uh, my first book, et cetera. So, I decided, you know, I got to make sure this is something I really want to do, but I felt relief when I actually started eating meat again because I had already really come to the belief that it would be healthier for me if I did. And so by not eating it, I was denying myself what I thought I should be eating. So it was kind of an interesting, it was different than I expected because I thought I might feel remorse and I just felt relief. And that, that's, that's a, I guess, the best way I can put it.
0: And that choice has worked out for you?
1: Very well. So um, I've, the last few years, I've eaten meat probably every day. I don't eat huge quantities, but I eat it probably at least once a day. And I really enjoy it. It's delicious. It's very satiating. And it, one of the surprising things about it is that I'm able to cook and eat foods that I grew up with. And, you know, especially having been reared in an omnivorous household. And that connection that I sort of now have again to the food of my childhood has been Really enjoyable. I, it was something I didn't even think that much about when I first started eating meat again. But, you know, for example, my family always had this really nice beef stew for um, Christmas Eve that was put into these little pastry shells. And it was a very special meal. It took a lot of work to prepare. And we only had it once a year, you know. And I didn't have that when I was, you know, a vegetarian. So I started preparing that again as a Christmas food. And it was just, Incredibly enjoyable to prepare it and to share it with my family. I have two sons, and so the four of us—my husband and I and my two sons—would eat this together, and it was just like very um, nourishing and just wonderful. So, there's a lot of um, aspects to the whole thing that I hadn't thought about before.
0: So, a, a cynic would say, right? A, a lot of what you're experiencing is is emotional and connective, and let's just say anecdotal. But you feel strongly that in general, for anybody, regardless of, of state in life, that meat should be a part of their regular diet.
1: No, I, I, don't, I wouldn't put myself into that camp. I think there are people who feel it that way. My, my view is a little different. The way I view it is meat and eggs and dairy and fish, you know, the food that comes from animals, are all extremely nourishing foods that our bodies have evolved with for 3 million years. They provide not just high levels of protein and many other nutrients, things like vitamin B and B12 and zinc and many other nutrients, but they provide it in a form that is uniquely bioavailable, and with all of the essential amino acids.
0: Sorry, that's the first time I've heard that word. So You're saying prepackaged, basically.
1: Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I didn't say prepackaged, but you know, I mean, we've we've evolved with we've evolved with it. So our bodies not only need it, but they really know how to use it really well. So you're, you you laughing about the word bioavailable. Is that the word you're chuckling? A, l- a little bit. Okay. Um, so yeah, bioavailable means that basically our bodies know what to do with it, and can use it really readily. So for example, the spinach, spinach is often talked about as something that's very high in iron. But if you actually, there's been quite a bit of research on this, foods like spinach and kale that have really high levels of iron, it's a form of iron that is difficult for the body to use, but also the plants contain other what are referred to as anti-nutrients that make it harder for your body to absorb it. So the spinach is not actually a really good source of iron because it's very, very difficult for your body to use that. So that's non-bioavailable iron. And whereas the, the iron that's contained in a piece of meat, especially red meat, is, has, has a high iron content, is really easily and well used by the body so if you had a like a piece of red meat on the plate and a, and a pile of spinach on the plate and you like measured how much iron was in each one before you know before you ate it it would tell you almost nothing about how much of that would actually be used by your body because the bioavailability of the beef is more than twice as high as the iron, the bioavailability of the iron is more than double in the red meat than it is in the spinach. So it's, you know, th- that's the point. It's, it's, you know, nutrients are not just nutrients. There's a lot more to it. And the complexities of that stuff is just being understood in more recent years. It, a lot of that was not known until more recently.
0: So let's start breaking down some of my ignorant preconceptions about food, because there are they're sort of out there. So when you, when you first mentioned when I first saw your bio that you were working with the Waterkeeper Alliance and the focus there was, um, sort of farming or, or water pollution caused by, um, industrial farming.
1: Well, it wasn't really when I first arrived at the organization that it's Waterkeeper is an organization that was started by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in New York. And he was, focused on this idea that you could have an organization that would work with a lot of local organizations that were focused on their particular community. So it started with the Hudson River Keeper, which he was like a co-founder of there in New York, north of New York City. And then there was a second keeper organization established not too far from there. And then there began to be You know, by the time there were like a dozen of them, Bobby thought, well, we should have this organization that's kind of connecting all of these keeper organizations together. So there were bay keepers, sound keepers, river keepers. So when I arrived at Waterkeeper, we had, I think it was around... 80 organizations that were keepers there's the San Francisco Bay Keeper for example as well there're lots of them and the idea was to have an umbrella organization so everyone would be linked together and they could share information and ideas about how to protect their local water bodies but bobby was bobby kennedy was increasingly concerned that there was pollution from concentrated livestock operations that was not being addressed you know by the federal government or by you know by the Environmental Protection Agency, or by the states and their environmental agencies. So he felt that that should be something we should work on. And I was there was already some work being done on it, but he asked me to make that the focus of the organization. So it was it wasn't really the focus when I arrived, but it was when I left.
0: So in my head, I would like if you asked me about water pollution in America, and, and especially like inland waters. My first thought would just be industrial waste, right? Like I, I, I wouldn't have imagined that farming would be anywhere close to what's produced by industry.
1: Yeah, well, I was, I was a, a lawyer for the National Wildlife Federation before that, as I mentioned, and that, and that was that job was almost entirely focused on industrial pollution. So, some major. Paper plants, for example, were concerns of ours and, and a number of other big industrial polluters. But what's interesting, what I learned at the waterkeeper job and what I've written a lot about in my books and articles over the years is that when you sort of look at our country today, the, the laws that were adopted, the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act and others that were adopted around 1970, 71, 72 in those years To try to address water pollution in the united states those did a pretty good job of reducing a lot of those kinds of what they call point sources you know where there's basically like a pipe leading out into a water body that's you know dumping an industrial pollutant so the clean water act did a pretty good job with that what we realized is that even though farms and you know agriculture was covered in the Clean Water Act, there wasn't really much application of the law. So we were trying to make sure that the states in particular and the federal government were applying the Clean Water Act where it should be applied, so to agricultural operations um, and especially to these large concentrated animal operations, which were pretty significant polluters of the water but they weren't being regulated by that. So that was what we were trying to do. We were just trying to really get the law enforced.
0: Yeah, because I didn't, I mean, if you, if you asked me to think about like a, a big industrial chicken farm, I would think about a bunch of chickens sort of suffering in a, I don't know, some metal shed somewhere in terms of scale. Uh, just so I have a picture on my head, what what is that sort of scale relationship of of farming based water pollutants to current industrial pollutants?
1: Well, I mean it's important to note that a huge portion of the pollution that comes from agriculture is from crop production. So you know, there's a lot. Of, there's been a lot of talk about the giant dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which comes from crop production, and just basically flows down into the Gulf of Mexico from the upper Midwest. And a lot of that is feed crops for animals, but it's also crops that are raised for direct human consumption and other purposes. And and things like soy, which are used for oil and for soy meal and for all kinds of other foods and additives. And corn is used for feed, but it's also used for sweeteners, for all kinds of food products. You know, so it isn't just about the animal operations. It's about the whole food system and about all of agriculture. It's really, you know, there's this just kind of, there's been a broad attitude in agriculture for a very long time that the number one thing that needed to be do done was produce a lot of calories and produce them cheaply. And so um, a lot of chemicals have been used in our food system and still are. You know, a lot of very ecologically destructive practices have become... Absolutely standard, and so this issue of the, you know, the chickens or whatever you're talking about, you know, whatever part of the um, system that you're talking about, is really just one piece of a um, much bigger problem, which is just an unsustainable, ecologically unsustainable food system that uses a lot of methods um, that are not, don't produce healthy food, and have a lot of negative environmental impacts.
0: So, if you had made the statement to me yesterday or, or a week ago of it's the agricultural component that's creating a lot of this pollution. I would have looked at you blankly like, what? Like I didn't I didn't get it. But you, the reality is 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 what you're really you're talking about is the fertilizer, the components needed for the fertilizer, the components needed for the pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, etc. It's it's the chemical additives to the environment.
1: Yeah. And the methods. So the large scale monocropping. So, you know, if you just drive through, I mean, from Michigan, I've spent a huge amount of time in the Midwest and the upper Midwest, not just when I was growing up in that area, but also in the years that I've been working on these issues, you can just drive through huge sections of our country, whether you're in Nebraska or Iowa or Indiana, you know, and you can just see these vast fields that are essentially biological deserts. You know, and these are the places that are growing, again, not just the feed for the animals, but a lot of things that are used directly in human consumption. And, you know, this is not an ecologically sustainable way, not just because of the runoff. You know, what you were just mentioning, the application of all these chemicals is really problematic for the groundwater, for the rivers, and then ultimately for places where it's running down to, like the Gulf of Mexico. But it's also a huge problem because you're basically just destroying all of the biodiversity throughout the country. Wherever you have large-scale industrial-style agriculture, you're destroying all of the life that the sort of complex life that exists in the soils and above ground. And so we've seen there's really dramatic research that's been done in the last couple of decades about the decline in biodiversity of insect life, for example, something like 70% Seventy percent of the biomass of the insects have have declined in the last decade or so. I can't remember the precise statistics, but it's something like that. And the same thing is true, whatever kind of eco- level of ecosystem research you're doing. So whether you look at the complexity of the microorganisms in the soils, that has declined dramatically. And if you look at a typical agricultural field, there's almost no biodiversity of the microorganisms there. Whereas, you know, a healthy field in a regenerative farm or just in a natural environment, you will have in just a tiny portion of soil, like in a cup of soil, you have more diversity and number of microorganisms than you do humans on the earth. So it's like, there should be a lot of life in our food system. (laughs) And there isn't, there's a lot of Death. There's a lot of simplicity. You know, we try to kill everything that we think of as a pest, whether it's an insect or whether it's a any kind of bird or insect or anything that is attacking the crops. You know, we try to get rid of it. We try to kill it. And the regenerative mindset of agriculture is totally different. It's about focusing on creating healthy ecosystems in our, with our food systems. And there are some really interesting and exciting models of that happening around the world. But animals in agriculture are a key part of that. So that's, that's kind of what I'm really passionate about is talking about and writing about, you know, just trying to get people to think about this idea of how do we make our farms into ecosystems.
0: So, and so to that point, I think it was this last the COP26 in Glasgow last year, and and they basically, the ag folks or the ag portion of that basically came out and said something like, it's the soil, stupid. And, and I keep hearing like over and over again, it's the soil,
1: it's the soil. Yeah, actually, that's what that exact phrase is <laughs> kind of funny. We started saying that on my Facebook page a few years ago. It's the soil, stupid, because we were, we were, I mean, I'm not saying I'm the, I'm the origin of that phrase. I may have contributed to the origins of that phrase, but we were saying that quite a few years ago on my Facebook page again and again, because uh, a bunch of us kept having the same conversation like, wow, the, the focus of so much of the conversation around food and farming is still ignoring the key foundational, literally, element, and that is the soil.
0: And so, for for a layman, in simple terms, I mean, I know you talked about the biodiversity, but can, is it? It's more than that, right? It's, well, it's
1: it's one thing that I found amazingly su- surprising and and super interesting, as I've you know been rese- re- researching and writing about this stuff for the last couple of decades. Is that um, I met a lot of farmers and ranchers who went to agricultural school, you know, went to college, studied agriculture, and they told me. That in all of their years of practicing agriculture and in all their studies in college, and in all their years working with extension agents, you know, from the Department of Agriculture, they were never told anything about soil biology that there was discussion of the soils but it was always about like how much nitrogen is in the soil, how much phosphorus, how much potassium, how much calcium, you know, and then also the physical properties of the soil. So how crumbly is it, how how much aggregation of the soil particles is there, et cetera, that kind of stuff. But not this question that turns out to be even more important than all of those things, which is how much life is in the soil. So all of our You know, agricultural systems, whether whether they were big, huge tractors raising giant monocrop cultures, you know, single giant fields of wheat or soy or corn, you know, or whether you're talking about the herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, et cetera, that are so um, key to our modern systems the idea that these would have long-term damaging effects on the life of the soil and that that would ultimately lead to less healthy food as well as less, you know, lots of loss of life of wildlife, that was never really talked about. And this idea that the the health of the plant and the nutritional quality, the nutritional value of the plant relates directly to how much soil biology there is, how much health of soil life there was that was never taught to American farmers. And that's just beginning to be a big conversation in agricultural colleges today. And thank God it is. Cause it, you know, it's so, it's so, it turns out probably to be the most important question, but it was ignored for a very long time.
0: So, so the, the, the obvious sort of, um, extension of that in terms of putting putting that importance where it should be and then uh, making that part of, I think you call it regenerative farming. To me, that then means farms like the one that you have, where it's a bunch of cows kind of wandering around. It, it's got multiple crop types. It, it looks like what I would think a farm looked like in the 20s or whatever.
1: Well, I should clarify, we do not raise crops. We are just a grass-based ranch. I mean, we have a big garden and we have a little orchard and, you know, we we have some, we raise some things mostly for ourselves other than cattle. We also have poultry. We've had heritage turkeys and now we have heritage chickens here. Um, And we've had goats at some points in time. We don't have them right now. But we we are on a, we are on a, a piece of land here that's right on the western edge of the United States and it's very cool and windy and for people who know the you know that there was that old expression by Mark Twain the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco <laughs> I always love it. We 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 always talk about that quote because it's like so beautifully sums up Our lives, Um, because because we live as well in you know the same basically the same climate as San Francisco. It's kind of cool and foggy and windswept here where we live, and especially during the summer. So during the time of year when you would expect to get you know a lot of sun and heat, we don't get that here. So it's very difficult to to grow crops here at all, and it's also hilly and rocky. And so this is the kind of environment where the most appropriate thing, ecologically, I would argue, is to have grazing animals. And that's exactly what we do. We have the grazing animals, and they are essentially, from our perspective, they are surrogates. There were wild animals here for centuries and millennia, actually, before that. And those have mostly disappeared due to human development and human, you know, exist, the fact that there are so many humans living in California now. So you have to have that animal impact on the land. And the domesticated animals that are here are basically a replacement, a proxy for those disappeared wild animals. And what we're trying to do is manage them well and have them live their lives and have them impact the land in a way that's similar to how wild animals would once have done. And so when you mentioned like looking like a place from the 1920s, not really, because we're really focused on managing the grazing. And we do a lot of things with electric fencing to sort of try to specifically control. And we have a permanent fencing as well, but we have electric fencing, permanent fencing, and we have a very carefully managed program of where they are and for how long they're there and making sure that the land has both the animal impact and the rest. So l- resting the land is probably just as important as the animal impact, but you have to have both of those things. And all natural ecosystems have that kind of impact on them.
0: Yeah. It's a point that I think you you make frequently in your writings that a lot of the calculations or a lot of times in the whole, what's the best use for land is an acre better suited for, you know, plants or raising kind of thing. Is it a lot of people just sort of assume an acre is an acre is an acre. And that's really not true. Right.
1: Well, I didn't know myself. I mean, I had, I had spent, like I mentioned, I'm from Southwestern Michigan growing up and, and I was actually on farms a lot. It's a really good farming area. And, I had some knowledge of the fact that different areas are better suited for different things. But it wasn't until I lived and worked, you know, starting about 20 years ago, now every day for the last 20 years, on a place where we're actually doing agriculture, that I fully grasped how significant that concept is. Because even on our own ranch, there are very different, basically... The temperature, the amount of wind, the amount of sun is very different in different parts of our ranch. And what we can do and should do and how we can sort of manage it for the best ecological health is really different um, just on our own ranch. So when you think about that contrast, you know, with, you know, the middle of Iowa versus someplace in Wyoming or, you know, here on coastal California, they're going to be very, very different. And so part of what I really believe we need to think of as humans today is how do we, you know, have a complex food system that has a lot of different foods and different activities happening in different lands, but make sure that it's appropriate for that geography and that climate. And so, yeah, an acre is not an acre at all. (laughs) An acre is not even a half acre. <laughs> you know, It's like every piece of land is, is really unique. And one of the things I talk a lot with um, nonprofit environmental organizations that I interact with and government people that I interact with, because I do that quite a bit in my work, is to sort of try to think about this idea of focusing on outcomes, you know, rather than um specific requirements in, and regulations for land because the people who live on that land are the ones who know it the best. And they have a unique set of information and knowledge and daily observations and skills to know how to manage that the best. Not that's not to say that they can't improve what they're doing. And I think there's a lot of need for improvement, as, you know, that's kind of a lot of what my work is about, is trying to engage people in agriculture to try to improve what we are all doing, for all of us to try to improve what each of us are doing and think you know and, and adopt that kind of a mindset. But it's not possible for someone in Washington DC or in Sacramento in California here you know you know from some capital city to tell everybody in that state or in this country what they should be doing on their farmer ranch. And, and that actually is pretty counterproductive for the most part.
0: So I know you want to talk more about uh, requirements or than, say, output. But I'll, I, again, this is where I don't know much. But in my head, we've got 5,000 McDonald's across the states and twice as many Subway sandwiches and God knows how many uh, Del Tacos. Um, not enough in an ounce, by the way, but I think they're working on that in my head, the only way to meet the demand would be to have these sort of hyper-focused entities. And is that, I'm assuming, and I think you're going to say, well, no, that's not necessarily true.
1: Well, I mean, are you saying the demand for agricultural output, or are you saying the demand for food that's prepared for people to eat? just so i'm clear on what you're asking me about cuz i can talk about either thing but
0: i guess, i guess i would say both well I, in my head it's just plants and animals right and i i would think on the on on both sides you know whether it's hamburger buns or whether it's the chicken patty we're we're just we're consuming so much of prepared like processed foods
1: yeah absolutely in fact i i, I there was a An article, an analysis that was published in the Journal of American Medical Association the year before last that said that in the United States now, children between the ages of 2 and 18 are getting two-thirds of their calories from ultra-processed food. And a lot of that is fast food. To about 34% of calories in the United States comes from fast food specifically. So it's terrifying. <laughs> you know, when you think about it and you look at what's happening to the health of Americans and really everybody in the industrialized world in terms of, you know, not just weight, weight is just an indicator of unhealthfulness in terms of our diet and our lifestyles. And, but all of the outcomes, you know, we have such a dramatically increased rate of organ failure and, you know, whether it's kidneys, livers, you know, we have heart disease rates. We have obviously tons of diabetes. I mean, they've just been skyrocketing and it's kind of astonishing. We have more and more money poured into healthcare and more and more, you know, focus on that, but there's still very little focus on the root causes so I think the way we produce food, the way we prepare it, the way we consume it, it's all about this kind of um, shift away from the idea that we should be really connected to our local community, that we should be really connected to our sources of our food, that we should ourselves be, to the extent we can, raising some of our food, that we should be cooking our food. You know, there's just so much convenience and fast food, you know, pre-prepared foods, packaged foods, fast food. And I, and I understand it because I struggle with all of this stuff myself too. I have two young kids and I'm on the school board and I'm, we have a farm, we have a business, I write books, you know, so every single day is super busy. You know, I coach baseball, you know, there's just tons of stuff pulling at us every day but i have been trying really hard for a long time to make sure that i'm spending enough time on you know making sure we're getting whole foods real food that we're preparing it from scratch as much as possible that we're not relying on prepackaged sugary convenience foods because those foods are not just full of calories they're very devoid of real nutrition and so I'm trying really hard for our, the way we eat in our household to try to have as much real food and simple good food that has a lot of nourishment. And I realize that takes more time, you know, and it's not just about getting the ingredients and the cooking, but it's just the doing the dishes. You know, it's like the whole process is a big deal. Um, so you have to come up with systems and you have to figure it out. But But I can say, for example, for myself, you know i don't watch very much tv and i that's something i've just decided you know the tv watching is not as important to me not that not that i'm opposed to tv watching you know i think tv watching is nice i enjoy it myself but i don't watch two and a half to four hours a day like the average apparently for america today um so i've t- found places in my day where i can make the time and i just think it's worth it because you are There's so much enjoyment to be had from cooking and from eating together and eating a good, healthy meal. And I think you're healthier when you eat really nourishing, delicious food, especially food that you um, made from really good ingredients. So that's something that I just think, kind of as a society, we need to be thinking more about. How do we go back to the basics on the way we eat?
0: Right. But until that time, I guess I'm trying to ask if, at our current consumption rate, is it possible to meet the demand without industrial farming?
1: Um, well, yeah. I mean, just if you just look at... There, there would probably need to be some changes in the way we eat if we just, like... Let's say we took a magic wand and we said, okay, we can't have any more of these big concentrated animal operations. And we tried to just do it literally from one day to the next... That obviously wouldn't work, but that isn't how societal change happens. And actually, in my first book, Righteous Pork Chop, I go in quite a bit of detail into the research that's been done on that question and and just sort of the analysis about it. And basically, the amount of food that we produce in this country and in the world is absolutely ample to feed everyone by far there's actually quite a bit of an excess even if you fed every single person more than two thousand calories a day so th- we have enough food and even the animal-based foods uh and there's been there have been a lot of different studies have that have tried to figure this out and it's obviously complex but there have been some pretty serious attempts by some big think tanks to try to uh, you know do the math on this And they've basically said you could actually get rid of all the factory farms all over the world and you would still have, you would be able to produce almost the same amount of animal-based foods for the world's population. Even if you had everybody, all the animals out on grass, if you made everything organic, it would be slightly less, you know, but I don't think that that's a barrier to, and actually there's sort of counter evidence now because there's really good, evidence showing that the really good regenerative farms are way more productive because of this soil health issue. They produce more plant growth. They produce more and healthier animals. So they have higher yields of everything. Um, and, you know, it's kind of the engine, this, the, the soil being the engine that drives it all. So I think this is kind of a red herring when we talk about can we feed the world without factory farms. To me, the answer is pretty clear that we can. And also, nothing would happen from one day to the next. It's really about migrating the system towards a more ecosystem kind of concept, getting, you know, reducing chemicals over time, reducing our dependence on those, and try to create food system health in the same way that ecosystems function, which is about complexity and diversity and things being connected to one another, having cover crops and having diverse plants being used for those cover crops and having animals grazing those cover crops. You know, we have this oversimplified um, agricultural system right now, which thinks much more about producing a single entity and producing that one thing. And that does not work. That is, we're seeing the failure of that system and that's what's leading to the need for more and more pesticides, more and more herbicides Herbicide resistant plants and weeds. And so I just think we need to completely rethink the way we're raising food, the way we're producing food and productivity, you know, higher productivity as well as better nourishment is going to come from that.
0: Yeah, but so but how compatible is that thought with capitalism?
1: Oh, it's very capitalistic. You know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Gabe Brown. He's a probably the most famous farmer in the world right now. He does speeches all over the world, and he's written a wonderful book called Dirt to Soil, which I recommend to anyone who's interested in these topics. And he's a very hardcore, I don't know if he'd call himself a Republican or a libertarian, but a very strong conservative socially and politically. And he when he started on this kind of regenerative journey, he just had a, a, a sort of a really simple monocrop farm in North Dakota, corn and soy is all that he raised. And he kind of inherited it from his in-laws, in fact, and they had a lot of financial problems and a lot of problems with the weather, and to the point where they were almost having to it was to sell the farm. And he decided to begin trying to do something very, very different. And as he transitioned to much more complexity, much more diversity, started adding animals back onto the farm, et cetera, he also got rid of all of the government subsidies. He decided he wanted to wean himself, not just from pesticides and herbicides and everything else like that, but he wanted to wean himself from all of the government supports. And he doesn't take any government subsidies now on his farm. We don't either. My husband and I don't either. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't who are in agriculture, but he doesn't take any, um, to go back to Gabe Brown, he doesn't take any kind of public supports. And his farm is not just more productive now than it's ever been, but far more profitable. So he's kind of a beautiful you know, spokesperson for this idea that we can do things in a very different way and have a much better outcome not just for animals and the land and the water and all that, but for humans, you know, you can have not just a better quality of life, but a more profitable way of life. And he's, he's, he's a great example of, you know, the success of the free market, getting rid of all of these supports that we've put into the food system and actually trying to focus on actual sustainability, both ecologically and financially.
0: That's interesting. Um, Wondering if that that sense of ethos that he has is transferable into a corporate entity.
1: You know, a lot of what is not working in the industrialized world these days is about, you know, the power, the political power of large corporations and the amount of money that we have in the political system and the extent to which, you know, that controls so much of where government policy goes and where government subsidies go. But I think that, you know, the solutions are going to come from individuals, you know, from, and what's kind of neat about farming is you are, you know, you're farming or ranching, you're on, you're on your own piece of land there and you have obviously connection to the greater society and to government and so forth, but you have a lot of sovereignty and a lot of ability to do what you want to do, you know, to use your own ideas and creativity and your own ethics on your farmer ranch. And so a lot of the most innovative and exciting things in agriculture today are coming from individual practitioners. And they are kind of showing the way forward in my view. People like Will Harris in Bluffton Georgia, Gabe Brown in North Dakota, and many others that I've read about and places I've visited there's a lot of really good stuff happening. And I think the key point that needs to be emphasized again and again is that we need to somehow figure out how to create food in harmony with natural systems. We need to be in harmony with nature and that produces healthier food. And it also produces better livelihoods for the people doing the doing the jobs to produce the food, the farmers and the ranchers. And it produces better lives for all of the animals And even the people living in the communities that are near those farms or ranches. So it's a whole different approach. But regenerative agriculture is not just a real thing. It's something that I think we must do as humans. It's essential to, you know, to survive.
0: I want to be respectful of your time. I I know we're coming up on, uh, on it. I was wondering if you had a couple of extra minutes to talk about the ethics of eating meat.
1: Sure, I, know, I I do have to go, um, we're past the time limit that we <laughs> agreed on, but I certainly am happy to talk about that for a few moments.
0: Okay, so uh, you, you mentioned it, I don't know if it was early in the conversation or or during our pre-talk, but this, this thing about where people come up to you and apologize for, for eating meat and this whole ethical, I feel bad, I personally, like I've eaten meat all my life, but I feel bad when I eat bacon. Right. I think of the pigs. I think of the intelligence of pigs. I I think of Babe and, you know, movies with famous pigs in them. And you're, you know, in one of your, I think in your TEDx talk, you showed photos of your farm, had a bunch of pigs on them. They looked like really nice
1: pigs. We don't have pigs on this farm. They oh. haven't been here before over the years, but okay. um I I show pictures of some other farms that I am familiar with and who, that I've been to and that are friends of ours that are that but anyways, yes. I would just say my my message is never that people should eat meat or they must eat meat. I mean, I think this is a very personal and individual choice. And I would say to anyone who says, I feel guilty or embarrassed or uncomfortable when I'm eating meat or when I'm eating bacon, I would say, well, then don't eat it. It's an individual choice. I think people need to figure out what they're comfortable with and make that decision for themselves. But the realities of the health benefits of eating meat and of the ecological importance of animals on farms should not be ignored that that should be part of the discussion and part of the you know the the public conversation and so my point is never to encourage people to eat meat or to tell people they should eat meat but rather to tell people you know if you want to eat meat try to find the best meat you can afford And then enjoy it and don't be, you know, sort of dragged down by a societal, you know, guilt trip (laughs) that might be happening out there for whatever reason, you know, ecological or animal welfare or um, rights issues. I think those things are important ideas, but those are very individual choices. And I think as individuals, we should all figure out what works for us, for our own ethics and for our own bodies.
0: But there is, I think, I perceive there is this judginess of from vegans and vegetarians, right?
1: Well, it depends. I mean, it depends on. I, for myself, for example, was a vegetarian for over thirty years. I never. I mean, I shouldn't say never. Maybe when I was a you know first a freshman in college and I first became a vegetarian, maybe for a month or two, <laughs> or maybe a year or two, I was judging other people who were not you know, who are still eating meat Um, because people do go through that phase. And I probably was like that myself. I don't remember being like that, but it's very possible. But that being said, I have always, I had this sort of background, spending a lot of time in nature growing up. And to me, everything is about understanding how nature works and what our role and what our, what is our place here basically. And I've always thought of plants and animals all very tightly connected and that when we live in, you know, sort of modern industrialized societies and especially when we live in big cities, which I have, I've lived in quite a few different big cities around the world, including almost five years in New York City. But, you know, you're really disconnected from that whole concept of being part of nature. So we we it's easy to forget and to not think about our age-old connection that humans have with nature. But I really believe that this process where animals are eating plants and plants are actually ultimately eating animals because when animals die their bodies go into the soil and nourish the soil and that's where the plant gets its nourishment from you know so the plants are eating the animals the animals are eating the plants and other plant animals are eating other animals i mean this is what our our whole earth is built on you know there's this kind of natural regeneration that happens continuously and has from the beginning. And so this idea that it's somehow morally wrong for a human to eat an animal to me never made sense. And it's something that I've never agreed with. And so even when I was a vegetarian for 30 years, I didn't think it was morally wrong to eat animals. And I still don't. And I actually, you know, more so than ever, I don't think that. But that being said, I think if an individual decides they don't want to do it because they're not comfortable, I have no problem with that. And I don't think anyone should try to mock them or shame them into eating meat. But likewise, I think because it's so natural and so we've evolved for so long with eating meat and eggs and fish and all of that, that it is wrong to tell someone that they are morally wrong to eat meat because it's prob- it could be the very best choice for that individual. And that's the, that's the point that I'm trying to make. We shouldn't be judging people's choices about eating meat or not eating meat. We should be trying to make the best possible systems for raising animals and for raising all the food that we eat and try to get as many people as possible to be able to eat healthy food, have access to it and to be able to afford it and to know how to cook it. And that's what I'm really passionate about.
0: Got it. Thank you, um, and I appreciate you taking the time to spread your passion on uh, this podcast. If people want to learn more, you you have written a couple, at least a couple, at least two books. Where do where do people go to find out more about uh, regenerative farming?
1: Yeah, well, I've written. I wrote a, a book called Righteous Pork Chop a number of years ago, which was kind of describing my own journey into this and talked about the way agriculture had changed and food production had changed over the years. So it's kind of like a history of agriculture, but also my own story learning about a lot of the stuff we've just been talking about today, actually. And then I wrote a book called Defending Beef. And that book was, I just completely rewrote it and reissued it. So there's a new version of that. And it's called Defending Beef, the Ecological and nutritional case for meat, and so I go through a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about in more detail. Um, and I have um, an active presence on social media, so so any of those books are available on Amazon. And Chelsea Green is the publisher of defending beef, and they still sell it. And Harper Collins is the you know the the publisher of um, Righteous Porkchop, so you can go directly to the publisher as well. Um, but I think a good way to sort of just if anybody's interested in this stuff and just wants to learn a little bit more. I have a defending beef Facebook page and and Twitter account. They're just defending beef is what you know they're under, and then I have a personal page too. Which if someone's really interested, they could send me a message asking to be a friend on my personal page because I do a lot of discussion about food, farming, agriculture, sustainability, everything you know, and more. <laughs> everything we've been yeah. talking about and more. And there's a really really interesting network of chefs and farmers and all that kind of stuff that I engage with on Facebook I'm really interested in discussions and we do a lot of interesting discussion about about these ideas and how to move everything forward
0: so uh, we like to wrap up our podcast by acti- asking the guests if there's been any sort of media that they've consumed and I know you said you don't watch a lot of TV but if there's been any sort of TV or movie or book or music uh that you've consumed recently that you think the audience should know about now is the time to share that i'm sorry to put you on the spot we put everybody on the spot and if you say yellowstone i'm probably gonna yell
1: (laughs) i've actually never seen that that's been um, recommended to me many times but i have to i just have to mention a book that probably a lot of people might be a little daunted by because it's really thick But it's one of the best books I've ever read about food and health and agriculture. And it really got me thinking deeply about a lot of stuff I'd never thought about before. And that's called Nourishment by Fred Provenza, who is a, a retired professor. And he was for several decades a researcher in animal Health actually, and animal nutrition. And he wrote this wonderful book, Nourishment, which connects a lot of his ideas and his research to human health and human nutrition. And he basically argues that we have, each of us, have an innate nutritional wisdom, a sort of a knowledge about what we need to eat to stay healthy, and that we've kind of lost touch with that idea and don't a lot of people don't think about it that way or know how to tap into it. And we think we need to be told what to eat by nutritional experts. And he, he kind of argues that that's, that's a false starting premise. And it's just really interesting. It it might sound very dry and boring. It's not. But it is a long book. <laughs> it's a dense read. So you have to, you know, have a lot of commitment to get through it. But it's a great a great book for someone who really wants to learn more about some of the stuff we've been talking about today.
0: I might wait for the movie.
1: I don't know if that one's ever, that would be really hard to put to screen, but, um, but yeah, that, that one, and and, you know, there might be an, um, audio book on that one. I'm not sure, but it would be a good one to listen to, too, I bet.
0: All right. Nicolette Han-Nyman, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Obviously a lot of thought-provoking work and, and best of luck with your efforts. It's, uh, I, I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me as a guest.
0: Thank you for listening. Catch us on Spotify and iTunes and at
1: tiltatwindmills.com.